This week, it's about the ASF Day of Learning. We're going to be providing you a 30-minute summary of the highlights of Thursday's Day of Learning. This is all thanks to science associate Katie Madgett, who took amazing notes and filled me in on details I missed while watching these fantastic presentations. Before I get started with the science, I want to give a huge shout out to my friends Judith and Amy Ursitti, who received the Karen Schwartzman Award for their contributions to the autism community. If you live in the U.S. and have received insurance coverage for at least some part of your child's services, you can thank Judith. She was part of the first group of parent advocates who fought for insurance reform, even making it her full-time career. She has a son, Jack, with profound autism. And the other awardee was her daughter, Amy. Amy is a fierce advocate for her brother. She just graduated from Emory and is dedicating her life to better understanding of people with intellectual disabilities and autism. She's what we call a helping sibling. Both of these individuals are so deserving of this honor. They are both amazing advocates, family members, and they've even started a new organization, the Profound Autism Alliance, that was designed to even better meet the needs of this group of individuals with their unique challenges. The first presentation of the science component of the day was a look back at the past 10 years of research. The second was a looking forward to the next 10 years. Dr. Kelsey Martin from the Simons Foundation described how genetics over the past actually 20 years has helped describe the causes as well as influence the diagnosis and the behavioral features of autism for more targeted interventions and supports. Scientists know that there are genetic and environmental contributions to autism, but they have kind of the genetics more firmly understood. As complicated as our genetics are, at least the entire genome can be mapped and then the function of those genes can be determined through more basic research. That's not always possible with environmental factors. Using genetic cohorts like Missing, Spark, Simon Simplex Collection, the Autism Sequencing Consortium, and Simon Searchlight, the evidence so far says about 14% of cases of autism can be explained by some of these rare genes or single genes. There is a glass half full, which means that science can explain some of the causes of autism with just a few genes. It's also half empty because what about the other 86%? When I say just a few genes, we're really talking about over 100 genes, which is more than a few, but drastically less than the millions in our genome. But what does this tell us about the causes of autism? I mentioned they might explain features of autism for more specific treatments. These targeted interventions and supports for specific issues in autism will come up later in Dr. Evdokia and Ignacio's presentation. But Dr. Martin explained how the mutation of one gene, when it was only mutated in the periphery, not in the central nervous system, so think about that, only in certain parts or certain cells, it affected sensory function in mice. Sensory issues affect over 90% of people with autism, so clearly it means it's more than just one gene. And people without a particular genetic mutation also have sensory issues. But this gene clearly contributes to sensory issues, and targeting it is a good start to help therapies alleviate these issues. This gene also affects anxiety, with deletions causing anxiety symptoms in a mouse model. Unfortunately, drugs used to treat anxiety don't really work well in this model, suggesting that there needs to be an effort to identify targets of sensory issues and anxiety issues in people with autism. What works in people without autism may not work in those with autism. We'll hear more about anxiety and the specifics of autism anxiety in Dr. Connor Kern's talk later. 
On the other side is what should research focus on in the next 10 years, given by Dr. James McPartland of Yale. Dr. McPartland also happens to be the chair of our SAB, and he actually argued that over the next 10 years, there should be less about just understanding autism as a whole or one particular concept. As a clinician, the label of autism does help families understand concepts, and it obviously opens the door to services, but it also tells very little about the specific needs of individuals across the spectrum. For example, if you do a search about what brain regions are involved in all of autism as one big conglomeration, you get hits all over the brain. He called this the everything, everywhere, all at once effect, where everything, everywhere, all at once is affected when the diagnosis of autism was the outcome. But if you break down all the different features of autism rather than aggregate and think about things such as face perception, you can find not only narrowing down of a few brain regions, but also a relationship between this concept, face perception, and brain activity. Unfortunately, right now, we're lacking in outcome measures to study these singular or few symptoms of autism. Dr. McPartland pointed out that biological measures of single domains like face perception are possible, but wondered how they could be targeted behaviorally. He suggests scientists think about using big data sets to measure specific aspects of autism. People collect all sorts of things about autism. You can then narrow that down in a large data set. He suggests we use animal models to consider biological processes. And finally, another theme we'll hear at the end of the day was he suggested that we look across disorders like attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, autism, obsessive compulsive disorder, schizophrenia, and depression. Then maybe we can get to targeted interventions. One medication may not be effective at treating all people with autism, but maybe some. For example, transmagnetic stimulation seems to help with depression, but what about depression in people with autism? Or what about helping people with autism with their depression? The next 10 years should be about using neuroscience and behavioral tools to understand autism in a meaningful and specific way. Then we moved on to another speaker who advocated for studying autism as part of a larger group, Dr. Evdokia Anagnostu from Hall and Bloorview Hospital in Toronto. She noted that there's a large diversity of clinical presentations with autism. They end up at a neurology clinic because they have problems, issues, challenges, and symptoms. These could include sleep, epilepsy, and mental health. On the other hand, some have deficits in things like social communication and others are exceptional. But in her medical and clinical opinion, often kids with autism are more similar than different than kids with ADHD or anxiety. Sometimes, in fact, those symptoms will present like autism. She sees many distinct conditions that get labeled as autism or who have different labels but also appear to have autism traits. So her question is, how can scientists use biology to understand all the different types of autisms and how they overlap with mental health and physical health conditions? Instead of thinking about autism as a diagnosis, what about you start with a group of people across different neurodevelopmental disorders with similar features and then look at their biology? Dr. Martin talked about genomics, and we've heard about over 100 genes that are known to be involved in autism. So are there 100 types of autism? There probably are, but they don't map onto these different genetic groups. If we wanted to come down to similarities versus differences, it's not going to be solely on genetics. So in her study, 
which is the PON study, which is the Province of Ontario Neurodevelopmental Disorder Studies. She went across the entire province of Ontario and collected information from 4,000 kids with a broad spectrum of neurodevelopmental disorders. They included ADHD, intellectual disability, ASD, ASD with and without intellectual disability, obsessive compulsive disorder, and those who are typically developing. If you look at images of their brain and how the brain regions connect with each other, there were no specific groupings based on diagnosis. So the brains of people with ADHD looked similar to those with autism. They weren't grouped together based on their actual diagnoses as based in the DSM. They did group, however, on things like cognitive abilities and ADHD symptoms. And interestingly, socioeconomic status predicted what group you were in. So biological clusters are important, and it goes to show that the brain does not care what the diagnosis is. The brain develops independently of what diagnosis you have, and the symptoms don't necessarily care about a diagnosis either. If we base on symptoms, we may not always be accurate. If you talk to two different groups of people with autism, they'll make two different determinations of what their needs are. So how can anyone ever come to an agreement based on diagnosis? Now, this comes from me and not Dr. Anagnostu. I wanted to know what is the meaning of an ASD diagnosis if it's based on subjective evaluations and not necessarily biomarkers? What does it say when Dr. McPartland shows that there's no biological correlates when autism as a whole is studied, but if you narrow it down to a specific feature like face processing, then you start seeing these brain behavior relationships? Unfortunately, diagnoses and not necessarily symptoms are what de determines service eligibility. This probably needs to change going forward, but that's not going to happen in the next year. Speaking of rare genetic syndromes associated with autism, I guess that was more Dr. Kelsey Martin's talk, but our next speaker focused on a particular treatment in one. The condition is called ADNP syndrome. ADNP syndrome is characterized by a mutation in, you guessed it, the ADNP gene. It results in craniofacial changes, intellectual disability, autism or autistic behavior, developmental delay, breathing problems, and irritability and sometimes aggression. Now, recently on the tales of researchers having success with a drug called ketamine for depression, a study at Seaver looked at the tolerability and preliminary efficacy of ketamine for aberrant behavior, sensory reactivity, sleep, language, and adaptive functioning. Their group kind of found variable effects in those 10 kids with ADNP syndrome, but they did end up being significant for things like hyperactivity and irritability. Unfortunately, though, some of the problems are the tools used aren't really developed for people with autism, and they're certainly not developed for people with autism and intellectual disability. This is a problematic because most people with, in, with ADMP syndrome have intellectual disability. She did point to a new scale specifically developed for people with another genetic syndrome called Angelman syndrome. Better and more specific outcome measures or ways of measuring discrete and specific outcomes with people beyond just autism is really desperately needed. And if you've heard of this drug ketamine before, you're not alone. Ketamine is a drug that is used as an anesthetic. It has been abused and it does cause psychosis and hallucinations. Fortunately, though, the doses used in the Seaver study for ADMP syndrome were far lower than what would be considered hallucinogenic or psychoactive. After four presentations on autism or people with autism, 
it's time to turn to family members, specifically siblings. Nicole Rosen from UCLA, an ASF-funded fellow, has focused on helping siblings and understand their role in the development of their sister or brother with autism. She had previously shown that just the presence of a sibling improved adaptive behavior over the course of the life of those with the diagnosis. Now she's concentrating on the needs and interests of the siblings. Sibling relationships are often transformative and meaningful, and they last throughout a lifetime. Siblings play many roles. As parents get older, sometimes siblings become caretakers. So what are this group of siblings interested in and what is their experiences like? Well, she asked a bunch of siblings in a number of focus groups. She found that as siblings take on that caregiving role, their patterns and interactions with their brother and sister change over time. This is because of things like physical distance, social barriers like communication challenges, and sometimes safety and behavioral concerns. These siblings were also interested in expanding their own family. Now, there is an increased prevalence of autism in the children of siblings of someone with a diagnosis. This means the nieces and nephews, the next generation. Many siblings didn't even know about this. But as they thought about it, genetics and the probability of autism factored more heavily in the decision to have child number two than child number one. This is kind of human nature. If you want a kid, nothing's going to stop you. You will inject hormones into your eyeballs to have a child if you want one. Once you have one and are considering number two, sometimes families start to think about what the impact of that second child is going to mean for their existing family. They were interested in participating in research in all types. They also really wanted to understand their trajectories and outcomes as adults. These things are relevant to planning on how to care for their sibling, how to prepare the sibling to transition to live independently or non-independently or in between. The siblings said they, in fact, needed to solidify their own plans, think about legal planning, guardianship, services, social security, housing, and everything else. Unfortunately, there's just not a lot of support for siblings on this or a lot of resources. So what advice do they have for other siblings? Don't be afraid to ask for help. Ask questions and be part of the conversation. Learn strategies to connect with your autism sibling. Sometimes the bond can be difficult, especially when they're non-speaking. Find out how you can connect with your sibling in different ways. This can be things like taking a walk or bird watching. There are many ways to bond and communicate other than a spoken conversation. ASF partners with a program called SAMS Sibs Stick Together. Go to www.samssibssticktogether.com to participate in regular online meetings of siblings, talk about science, learn about resources, and support each other. We're having our next call on May 3rd. Now I mentioned to talk about anxiety. Connor Kearns from the University of British Columbia, the person who actually wrote a book or a supplement to a book on diagnosing anxiety in people with autism, also participated. The book is the ASD addendum to the ADIS or the Anxiety and Related Disorders Interview Schedule for the DSM. She used quotes from people with autism to explain anxiety and explain how anxiety is different in people with autism. When anxiety reduces the quality of life and interferes with functioning, it's a disorder. It also affects the entire family. It does express itself differently in people with autism or is experienced differently in autism. So we need to study what it's like in people with autism. First of all, it can be layered on top of autistic traits. Also, the symptoms of anxiety can be similar or they can be distinct 
from typically developing people. She grouped anxiety and autism into two types. One is called traditional anxiety and the other is called distinct anxiety. Traditional anxiety is what you see in the DSM as anxiety across different populations. Distinct anxiety does not meet the DSM definitions of anxiety, but it might reflect anxiety in people with autism. For example, people who said that interfering daily worries regarding things like schedule changes or other ASD concerns, like worry related to intense preoccupations, are atypical anxiety or distinct anxiety rather than typical anxiety or traditional anxiety. If, for example, also kids who lacked a fear of negative social evaluation but displayed consistent social discomfort or fearfulness also got a label for atypical anxiety. Scientists need to better understand these distinct anxieties. Distinct anxieties are underdiagnosed. Few kids are referred to treatment for distinct anxieties, but many people with autism are experiencing them. Specifically, the anxiety of children with intellectual disabilities was primarily composed of specific phobias, things like fears of dogs, dentists, heights, loud sounds, and other distinct anxieties. This is really meaningful as it suggests that cognitive abilities are more related to the expression of a child's anxiety more than the likelihood that they will have one. It also offers some insight on why studies suggest that brief anxiety questionnaires developed and normed in typically developing samples really aren't accurate in autistic kids. The traditional anxiety presentations these measures screen for reflect just one part of the picture, a relatively small part for autistic kids, especially with intellectual disability. There is also a different neurobiology in anxiety in people with autism. Recently, a specific study found that kids with traditional anxiety had significantly larger amygdala volumes, whereas those with distinct anxiety had smaller amygdala volumes. Therefore, the research suggests that they're prevalent, that these anxieties are prevalent and impairing for autism. They're likely to be under-recognized, under-treated, and adds to the considerable variability to the noise of research trying to characterize not just anxiety and autism, but autism itself. The next presentation was a last minute treat because the prevalence numbers were just released. We asked Kelly Shaw from the CDC to explain and answer questions about these numbers. Billy Bennett, who was supposed to talk about GI issues, was unable to attend at the last minute. So you heard about these CDC findings on last week's podcast, but in case you forgot, I'll go through them again. So in the ADAM network or the CDC monitoring of the numbers of kids with autism, a child can qualify as having autism if they have an autism diagnosis in their records, a special ed record of autism, or an ICD code for autism. The most recent number was 1 in 36 eight-year-olds, which increased from 1 in 44 just a couple years ago. There was some variability in these numbers across states. The patterns of race and ethnicity have changed over the last couple years. Historically, there's a lower rate of diagnosis in Black and Hispanic kids. This has been kind of inching towards being more alike to white kids. But in, 20, in this last study, the prevalence of Black and Hispanic kids was actually higher than that of white kids. They also looked at the prevalence of autism in four-year-olds. 
in the months prior to COVID, there were huge increases in identification. But after March 2020, it really just plummeted. We really don't know what effect that's going to have on later prevalence numbers. Upcoming from Adam, well, they're going to show the first adolescent follow-up study, and we'll learn about that in a couple weeks when we have another interview on this podcast from somebody from the CDC. There's an increase in co-occurring conditions in as kids reach adolescence. And there's the first population estimates of profound autism, which means IQ less than 50 or being minimally verbal, which will be also be reporting when the paper comes out. So last but not least, we heard from ASF grantee and self-advocate Zach Williams, who's an MD-PhD student at Vanderbilt and one of the busiest autism researchers I know. He works with other self-advocates and really aims for better inclusion of those with autism, not just in research studies as participants, although he's very, very clear that he thinks that's important, but also partners in the entire process, including research design. Fortunately, there is a greater acceptance by researchers that this is what should be happening. He leads the Autistic Researcher Committee through INSAR, which promotes better accessibility, mentorship, inclusivity, and funding for autistic researchers. He's also an advocate for participation in research, not just autism research, but participate in anything you're eligible for. Hell, I just signed up to be a participant in a study called All of Us, which has nothing to do with anything specifically health-related. They're just tracking people as they get older. Why is this important? It helps give everyone a perspective about other people's research in different fields. You also get the experience from the participant's point of view. Researchers should participate in research. It's valuable for their own expertise and their own information on research design. He also described how researchers could better include people with autism in the design of research and how they could better recruit. He partnered with Roche on something called a clinical trial explainer, which has information for participants about how research works, the best practices for working with participants, and how to make the research more accessible. He also called for the increased diversity of participation, Black, Hispanic, females, and those who are intellectually disabled, because research needs to help all those affected with autism. Please don't let this be the last you hear about the Day of Learning. If you want to learn more about each of the presentations, the videos will be posted on the ASF website very soon. Next week, an interview with Whitney Guthrie, who's at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. She talks about whether or not early intervention is better. So we're really looking forward to that. Talk to you next week.